Jesus' bread of life discourse, which we began last week, is just crammed full of rich theology. And so far, we've only covered half of his discourse, and yet we've taken deep dives into the doctrine of soteriology, which is the study of salvation. In only half of his discourse, we've already spoken about things like justification by faith, total depravity, predestination, particular redemption, regeneration, and perseverance. And to further prove this point of just how rich and, and, and important John chapter 6 is, I'm going to do something today that every preaching instructor in every seminary in the country would tell a preacher to never, ever do. And that is we are going to preach the same text again. Now, this might frustrate you. I know John is a long sermon series as it is, and you're ready to move on. But I pray that if you're patient with me, you will see that this is both edifying and necessary. So if you will please open your Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll begin maybe just a little bit further along than we did last week, beginning in verse 35. Actually, forgive me. Let's go back to verse 29. John chapter 6, verse 29. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 6, thus saith the Lord. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see you and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, for he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, after reading through that passage last week, it was very obvious to me as I was preparing the sermon that there was just too much in the text to do justice in one sermon. Now, maybe better preachers than me could, uh, but I'm just not at that level yet. And so I decided I, I could preach an hour and a half last week, or I could just break this up into two. So this is basically just part two from last week. 
And I think it's really important because really what we did last week, if I'm being honest with myself and with the sermon, we didn't really do a good job at looking at how the details of the text were glued together. To use an analogy, we looked at the recipe, but we never really examined the final meal. We, we saw the ingredients, but we, we didn't really look at how these ingredients were put together. So yes, we did a deep dive yesterday, we sort of, or last week. We, we structured the teachings of Jesus around the canons of Dort. We talked about the history there a little bit. And we summarized what we believe Jesus is teaching about salvation through this famous TULIP acronym. And so just to refresh your memory, we looked at the five points of TULIP that Jesus taught us that mankind is totally depraved in their sin, by their sin. And that this means that men are unable to come to Christ unless God gives them a special grace that draws us to his son. And we saw that by this grace, it is irresistible. It always accomplishes its purpose. It always brings people to the son. And we learned specifically who this which kind of sinners this irresistible grace is given to, and we saw that it's God's elect. Those who, before time, God had already set his heart towards this particular people, and these are those whom he sent his son Jesus into the world to save. And Jesus does save them. He doesn't just offer salvation to them, he actually accomplishes their salvation. And not only did Jesus die to secure the elect's salvation, he also perseveres their faith so that they never undo what the Father and he have accomplished in them. And so I tried to summarize these five points under the broad title, God's Sovereignty and Salvation. And we, we just saw how salvation is wholly a work of God. That's what we did last week. But what we didn't have time to do was a close examination of how that theology functions in this text. Like, did Jesus just randomly preach a random sermon that had nothing to do with what was going on around him? You would maybe get that impression based on what we preached last week. And so this week, I want us to see what is the relationship in this text between God's sovereignty of salvation and the circumstances in John 6. In other words, when Jesus is asked to provide proof that he truly is the Messiah, why did he suddenly break out into a sermon on God's sovereignty and salvation? How are those things related and it's an important step for us to take because not only is it just that, that's our job. Our job is to understand the passage, not just the theology in it, but to understand the passage. Uh, but I, I think it will actually help you when you see how God's sovereignty is functioning in the context. I really do believe that it will help you be more comfortable with it. And, and I say this because I am not at all ignorant of how hard and even if I can speak bluntly, offensive the theology of the Synod of Dort that we preached last week is and can be. This is especially the case if you're maybe not Reformed or you've only been Reformed for a little while, but even for people who have embraced these doctrines for many, many years still struggle with them, especially when they start to interact with them in real life, like unbelieving friends and family members. God's sovereignty and salvation is not an easy pill to swallow. God predestines some and not others. Isn't that unfair? That doesn't feel right to me. Why would he draw some and not just draw everyone? If it's irresistible, just save everybody. 
And why would anyone ever dare to believe that Jesus only intended to save the elect? That's not at all what I grew up being taught. And doesn't that, doesn't that contradict his love for the world? Does Jesus not love people? These are all legitimate questions and legitimate feelings that we encounter when we first hear some of the stuff I talked about last week. The doctrine can be shocking, it can be offensive and troubling. But I think that when we return back to John 6, we can learn from Jesus how to reverse our thinking on these things. I think for Jesus, God's sovereignty and salvation is not some confusing, offensive, controversial idea but rather it's the most comforting thing to him possible while he's in a hard situation. And so I want us to see for Christ how God's sovereignty and salvation, it did three things for him in this context. It motivated him, it comforted him, and it vindicated him. It motivated him, comforted him, and vindicated him. I actually, if you have a bulletin, because I had already prepared this sermon, I was able to get sermon notes in in time. I normally don't have time to do that. So these are outlined in your sermon bulletin if you have them. So we're going to look at point number one. I want you to see how God's sovereignty and salvation motivates Christ. Look at verse 29 with me. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. A common objection to doctrines that we discussed last week, like election and irresistible grace, is that that, that idea, those doctrines kill evangelism. Right? I mean, if God is just going to save whomever he wants, and if the people he hasn't elected can't be saved no matter what happens, then what's the point in preaching the gospel? What's the point in doing evangelism? If, if God is so sovereign that he's just going to save his elect and he's going to accomplish their salvation and, and, and he doesn't need us, then why evangelize at all? Just sit back on the couch and just let God save people. Now, there are numerous responses that I would give to this question, say, if you came to my office and asked me about it. But I, I want us just to limit all the different answers we could go to in Scripture. Let's just limit ourselves just to what we see in John chapter 6. And all I want to point out is that in John 6, the same Jesus who teaches that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them, the same Jesus that taught that the Father gave him a particular people to save, is the same Jesus who relentlessly preaches the gospel to the lost all throughout this text. We just saw it in verse 29, and at every step in the way, he goes back to calling these people to faith. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But then he realizes that they don't believe, so he gives some more teaching. And then what does he come back to in verse 40? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But then they grumble and complain, and so he does some more teaching. But then what does he come back to? Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. At every step in the way, he reminds them and calls them yet again, come to Christ, believe in me for life. Jesus doesn't see God's sovereignty and salvation as putting the brakes on evangelism. To the contrary, it's the very fuel that evangelism needs. God's plan of redemption motivated Christ to preach the gospel more relentlessly to everyone listening. 
Jesus, in other words, is motivated by the fact that God will always use our evangelism in one way or another. There is no such thing as fruitless evangelism. There is only fruitless evangelism if God isn't sovereign in salvation. But if he is sovereign, he has some purpose for it one way or another. And it is because God has an elect and he is guaranteed to, through the preaching of the gospel, save them, that evangelism now is filled with hope and excitement. And so let this be an application for everyone in this room. Do not grow weary in doing the good work of evangelism. Do not let philosophical speculations about the nature of free will and God's sovereignty interfere with the basic example that we have from Jesus to preach the gospel to every living creature. Just ignore the philosophers, ignore the metaphysicians, and just follow Jesus. And preach the gospel. You don't have to understand God's sovereignty and free will and contingencies and second clauses and uh, Aristotle's four different kinds of causes. You don't need to understand any of that to see Jesus sees God as sovereign and says, I'm going to go preach the gospel. So just preach the gospel. That's our job. Our job, in other words, is not to try and determine the identity of the elect. Right? Well, only, God's only going to save the elect, so I'm just going to figure out if this person's elect because there's no point in preaching the gospel to them if they're not. So let me try to figure out if they're elect and then I'll preach the gospel. God has not given you that job responsibility. We don't know who the elect are. So just, if you see a person with breath in their lungs, give them the gospel. Leave the rest to God. Our job is to be used by God in his predestined plans to preach the gospel and to disciple the nations. Just trust, in other words, what we just sang. That it is not you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Let God work in you, moving you to do goodwill and using the good that you do for his glory and for his good purposes. The sovereignty of God and salvation, it motivated Christ to evangelize. It didn't discourage him from it. But it did another thing. I believe that God's sovereignty and salvation also comforts Christ. It comforts him. Look at verses 36 through 37. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Rather than frustrate, anger, or confuse Jesus, God's sovereignty and salvation is actually a great comfort and encouragement to Jesus. And let me explain why I see that in these two verses. Keep in mind the context. Jesus has just performed many miracles. And these people have seen all of these incredible miracles that no mere human being could possibly do. And Jesus has not only done that, but he's done something even better. He's shared to them the sweetness of the gospel. It's the greatest message in the history of the world. Jesus has just given them incredible miracles and the sweetest, most powerful, important message in the history of the world. And then what does he conclude in verse 36? They've seen all these things, they've heard these things, and it ain't convincing. It didn't work. Apparently the gospel's not sweet enough. Apparently Jesus' miracles weren't impressive enough, right? It didn't work. Jesus has called them to spiritual life and in spite of all of his work and all of his attempts, these people still don't believe. This can be disheartening, no? 
I mean, did Jesus do something wrong? Maybe Jesus is sitting there thinking, ah, you know what, I should have just done a few more miracles. I let him down. Or maybe he's thinking, you know, I, I tried to be creative in my evangelism, right? The woman at the well wanted water, so I, I preached the gospel metaphorically. I am the water of eternal life. And these people wanted bread, and so I preached the gospel metaphorically. Well, I am the bread that you need. Maybe I should have just been more clear. I really let them down. In other words, Jesus has done all these things and they don't believe. So he failed, right? He failed. No. May it never be. Jesus is, to see this as Jesus comforting, he is now resting on God's sovereignty in this hard situation. I believe that is the only way to make sense of the transition from 36 to 37. At a glance, doesn't it seem like Jesus has just gone off trail here? Right? So Jesus says... But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And then verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. How do those things relate? What's the connection there? What Jesus is doing is Jesus is taking comfort in something. Their unbelief is not my fault. If God had drawn them, they would have believed. I did my part. He's taking comfort in knowing, ultimately, why haven't they come? Is it because he preached the gospel poorly? Because his miracles weren't impressive enough? No, they haven't come because God hasn't given them the grace to come. So Jesus can be comforted in here. I didn't do anything wrong here. I've not failed. You could look at it from a worldly perspective and say, well, you did fail. They didn't believe. Jesus is saying, that actually isn't my job. My Father is sovereign in salvation. He is taking comfort in God's sovereignty. It is both a consolation and an explanation for what has happened. And by the way, he does this throughout the text. Look at verses 41 through 42 with me. Or let's just do 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42. They said, is this Jesus? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Okay, so Jesus preaches the gospel, and they don't believe. So what does he do? He, he preaches another sermon, and then he calls them to the gospel again. And they finally believe, right? No. They get more confused. And they're now grumbling. They're now complaining. They've only been hardened to his message. Specifically, what their issue here now is the incarnation. The incarnation makes no sense to them. Jesus has said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, just like the bread in heaven from Moses came down. So they're imagining some guy floating down from the sky, the way the manna floated down from the sky. And they're saying, this makes no sense. How can Jesus claim to have floated down from heaven when we know whose mother gave birth to him? He's not some angelic man that came down from heaven. He was a baby, just like the rest of us. He didn't come from heaven. He came from Nazareth. <laughs> he came from Bethlehem. That's where Jesus came from, not heaven. They can't understand the incarnation. They're not understanding how this could possibly be a divine person who has taken on flesh. And even though he was born of a woman, he came down from heaven. They are growing hardened and frustrated with his message. Jesus has only made less ground with them. He's only widened the gap. They're now further away than they were earlier. And notice what does Jesus do after their grumbling? Verses 43 and 44. 
Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. He does exactly what he did earlier. They grumble, they disbelieve, and he immediately reminds himself, if they were elect, they would have come. So this isn't my fault. I'm not doing anything wrong here. Jesus is comforting by God's election. This isn't in my notes, and it's, it's technically outside of the sermon text, but I, I want you to see it again. L- look at verse, we didn't cover this, but look at, stay in chat, John 6, look at uh, verses 64 through 65. Or let's look at verse 63. The, this, by the way, in verse 60, yet again, the people hear more preaching and they get more confused and they grumble more. And so Jesus says this in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Three times in John 6, people grumble and disbelieve. And all three times, Jesus falls back on this same principle. God must draw them. He is explaining and consoling himself in this quote-unquote failed evangelism. He's reminding his own soul that the reason they have not come is because God has not given them, not because of me. Jesus is taking comfort in God's sovereignty. And guess what? It's the same comfort for you and me. Have you ever prayed for someone to no effect? Who are the unbelievers in your life that you've been praying for your entire life and you've seen no fruit? How many times have you shared Jesus with somebody and they've walked away? In my experience, it is an exceedingly rare thing to preach the gospel to someone and they believe it. Exceedingly rare. The vast majority of times I've preached the gospel, 99.9% of the time, it's been a total failure I one time went and did street preaching in Denver. I probably preached the gospel on that day to thousands of people and I had zero conversions, zero genuine responses. Most of the people spit at me, cursed at me, yelled at me. They hated it. So have we done something wrong? You're just not a good evangelist. You're not doing something right. And what does that motivation lead to? That's when people start messing with the church. We didn't have any baptisms this year. I guess our music is too boring. We need new music. It's not working. We had zero baptisms this year. A preacher preaches too long. All this boring liturgy. We need to excite people. What we're doing is not working. Here's the good news of God's sovereignty and salvation. Your job isn't what's working. That's not your job. You're not the one who draws people to Christ. That's not your job. Your job is not to impress people or be the ones that convinces them. Your job is to preach the gospel faithfully and then leave it to them and to God. God's sovereignty is a true comfort and salvation. You do not have to go to bed at night feeling like someone's eternal damnation is on your shoulders. If you would have just been more convincing had better arguments. They asked a bunch of questions and I didn't know their answers. They're going to hell now. It's my fault. 
Conversions are not our responsibility. They weren't even Jesus' responsibility. Our job is to preach the gospel. And when it doesn't work, trust and believe God is sovereign. He will use this somehow, some way. It's a comfort, the sovereignty of God in evangelism. But this all leads to what really is the most important thing I think Jesus is trying to get across in this. Tied up in, yes, in, in, in comfort, tied up in motivation is really the most important point. And we've kind of already hinted at it, but I, I think it's important to separate it nonetheless. God's sovereignty and salvation, it vindicates Christ. This is a true vindication. And let me explain that. Let me ask you, how would you grade Jesus' mission? Pretend you're the teacher. What grade do you give Jesus Christ? How did he do? We know he was sent to earth. It wasn't arbitrarily. He didn't just wake up one day and go, oh, whoops. And, and the fathers in heaven like, I don't know what just happened. I just woke up and you were a man. No, there was a purpose in this. He was sent for a purpose. He came to do something. How did he do? Does he pass? Does he fail? What grade do you give him? And I submit to you, we can't answer that question unless we know exactly what his mission was. What was he trying to do? And let me, let me suggest this to you. If Christ's mission, if his intention, if his very purpose was to save every person who ever existed, then let's be fair, he's not doing a very good job. As a matter of fact, statistically, he's doing a pretty lousy job. As things stand today, now there, are, there is a very optimistic eschatology that some Christians have that believe that at the end of time, heaven will be vastly more overpopulated than hell. So that's encouraging if that's true. But at least as things stand today, take your eschatology out. As, as it stands today, hell is going to be overrun compared to the resurrection. Even the most extremely generous, extremely liberal estimations suggest that not even half of the world identifies as a Christian. Less than half of the world today even identifies as a Christian. So if we just assume that everyone who calls themselves a Christian is going to heaven, Jesus still doesn't even get 50%. And we all know realistically among those people who claim to be Christians, the number of those who are actually genuinely converted is incredibly small. Rough estimates, maybe 20% of the world is saved today. When's the last time you've gotten 20% on a math test? Does Jesus get 20%? And by the way, this is only compounded if we go back in time. There have been moments in history where Christianity was extremely popular, but for the vast majority of the world's history, the people of God have been a small remnant. It was basically just Israel, and we know through the Old Testament that most of them were heathens. God's always been saving a small amount of people, even up until today. And so I ask you again, how's Christ doing? If his goal, if his intention was to save every person that ever existed, we need to be fair. He's not doing very well. And his disciples are tempted to feel that in John 6. Here's their Messiah. Here's this awesome guy performing miracles, preaching, and it's not working. Nobody wants anything to do with him. Sounds like Jesus isn't very good at his job. By the way, it's only going to get worse. In two weeks' time, when we finish John 6, the entire crowd is going to leave him except for his disciples. They're all leaving. 
Jesus offends them and drives them out. Doesn't sound like he's a very good savior of the world, does it? And by the way, keep in mind, this crowd came to him as admirers. <laughs> it's not even as like they hated him and he went in there and tried to change their minds. They came to him because they liked him and he made matters worse. Is he a failure? And I would argue he certainly doesn't see it that way. Look at verses 37 through 38. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Perhaps the most offensive thing we learned last week was the doctrine of limited atonement, that Christ only came to die and save for a particular people. And I understand why that can be troublesome. But I think in this context, we see how it's actually really good news. Because it vindicates the fact that Jesus was not and is not a failure. Election, irresistible grace, limited atonement, all of these things teach us that Jesus has a 100% success rate. That's how he's doing he has tried and failed at no point in time. He has never failed to save those he intended to save. We can grade him with a 100% perfect rate because it was not his intention to save every last person, but those whom the Father has given me. If the Father gives me every last person, I will save every last person. If the Father gives me one person, I will save one person. But whoever the Father gives, I will never cast them out and I will raise them up. 100% success rate. You cannot conclude, even in the midst of rampant worldwide unbelief, that Jesus has failed to be the Savior of the world. Because he guarantees that he will raise up each and every last person that he came to earth to save. And so let me say it kind of cheeky. Maybe the best reason for you to join a Reformed church is that you can actually crown Jesus with a champion's trophy rather than a participation award. Jesus did not just come to earth to try. He didn't come to earth just to give it his all and hope for the best. And we just pat him on the head. Listen, Jesus, I know billions and billions of people have gone to hell, but you really gave it your all and we're really proud of you. You tried really hard. Thanks for participating. No. We crown Jesus as the one who saved every last person that God sent him to save. He's a champion. He's a victor, not a participant. And he is continuing to complete that mission as he reigns from heaven, interceding for all of God's people, saving them, as the book of Hebrews says, to the uttermost. That's the good news of God's sovereignty and salvation. And so may we learn from our Lord how to rightly respond to God's sovereignty and salvation. May we resist the temptation to respond to it with, with repulsion and even rejection. But instead, may it move us to be motivated. To go out and be used by God's power to draw the elect to Christ. Resting in his power to save and above all, giving all glory to our vindicated Christ.
May the sovereignty of God do nothing but showcase the glory of Christ in our church. That he is a wonderful Savior who perfectly fulfilled God's plan to save the world. 